For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Welcome everyone uh, here at the Lincoln Square Zendo and online. I'm very happy to have uh, as our speaker this morning, Brooks of Warren. Many of you have heard Brooke before, um, but for those who haven't, um, Brooks of Warren is a professor at the University of Chicago Divinity School, one of our foremost American scholars of Chinese Buddhism. Uh, he's spoken here numbers of times before, and actually quite a few. Uh, ancient dragon participants down in Hyde Park have taken classes with him at the UC Divinity School. And some of you are here now. So thank you very much, Brooke, for coming this morning. I'm looking forward to your talk. Thank you. Thank you very much, Taigen. Thanks for having me here again. Um, so uh, before I start, uh, I know that Taigen sent around um, a version of uh, the paper that I it's a p sort of paper I'm writing now, which is um, what I want to talk to you today about. Could I just see a show of hands among the people on screen? How many people have had a chance to look at that or read it? So I kind of, okay, some sense. Okay, so I'll just start from the beginning. I'll just assume um, no knowledge of that. That this is about Buddhahood conceivable and inconceivable, and it's really going to focus on a very specific meditation uh, technique or process uh, that I think is is very central to the Tiantai tradition. Um, in the Mohajaguan is the uh, core text for that, uh, which develops into Tendai in Japan. And uh, you probably all know that um, Dogen, uh, founder of Soto Zen, began as a Tendai monk. I hope it will have some relevance to the kind of practice uh, you guys are also engaged in. Um, so to start out, um, we have um, this idea in the Lotus Sutra um, that all Buddhas appear in the world for one reason and one reason only, and that is to reveal and make accessible uh, the what is called the the knowledge and insight sometimes of a Buddha, which it just means that um, the goal of Buddhist teaching is not actually um, the elimination of suffering, except insofar as that's entailed in what it is like to be a Buddha. The Buddha teaches what it is like to be a Buddha. What is it like to experience the world as Buddha? And part of that claim, of course, is that this is really the only way to truly um, accomplish the end of suffering. But there's a little bit of a paradox in that that I think many of you are already familiar with, right? Which is that um, the elimination of suffering in the sort of literal uh, uh, sense of making it go away and never appear again um, is not the real end of suffering, that the real end of suffering will have something to do with um, uh, the, the integration of inevitable suffering into something that is um, experienced differently. 
Um, and to sort of see why that would be the case, I just want to remind you of some basic Buddhist premises that, that play into um, the way uh, these Kentai writers deal with this problem. Um, basic Buddhism, right? Um, whatever is determinate, whatever you can identify, whatever is a this rather than that, hot versus cold, tall versus short, um, is dependently co-arisen, arises uh, independence on conditions that are other than it. And as we develop, one of the first conclusions uh, uh, from that idea in very early Buddhism uh, is that all conditioned states, that is all states that arise only due to conditions, are suffering. Uh, that means all determinate states, just qua determinate, in other words, things that are, have a specific definite identity that excludes all other identities, um, are suffering. And the end of suffering means somehow um, handling or transcending or dealing with that state. Why is any conditioned thing suffering? It's impermanent, right? That's entailed in the fact that it's conditioned, that is, that it doesn't possess the conditions of its own existence. They are something external to it. So it must be impermanent. Uh, also that it has no self, meaning that it is not in control of its own experiences. It cannot um, uh, command what will happen to it or what it is even. Um, and this means in early Buddhism, you know, impermanence means suffering because suffering is already suffering and anything that is not suffering uh, is always going to be haunted by, threatened by, dissolving into suffering in one way or another. So any uh, determinate state will always involve suffering, given that to be determinate is to be conditioned, and to be conditioned is to be um, uh, non-self and impermanent. So this sets up quite a dilemma, right, when we try to figure out what possible state could there be that could end suffering. And of course, in early Buddhism, the idea is that it would be something called Nibbana or Nirvana, which would be the end of all conditioned states, the unconditioned as such. Because, again, you have this radical claim that it's very important to understand that even bliss, even happiness, because it's conditioned, because it depends on causes external to itself, is not really bliss. So we have the way the gods, the devas, are treated in early Buddhism. They are having a great time but they are also impermanent. They are also not ultimately in control of those experiences. And there will be um, a necessarily a, uh, a sharply painful come down um, sooner or later. So the unconditioned is the only possible end of suffering, but the unconditioned cannot have any way of, to be described. Any description is necessarily um, conditioned, right? If I say it's blissful, it's blissful as opposed to something else, as opposed to not being blissful. And as we'll see in um, in the Mahayana generally, but, but especially in Tiantai, this idea of contrast, of conditionality just by mere virtue of the fact of contrast is very much forefronted. So... Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to tell you a couple of, of slightly technical things today before we get to a passage I want to look at. One of them is that, um, well, let me before I get there. 
the unconditioned in early Buddhism, therefore, is just described simply as the negation, as the negative of all conditioned states. And we aren't told much about it, right? It is something unborn, uncreated, which is neither this world nor another world nor anything in between. All these straight-up negations, because any way of describing this would just make it conditioned again and would also make it suffering. There's a problem there, though, in that the whole Buddhist path is described as some kind of a means to an end where something called nirvana is to be attained through certain practices, through meditation, or through certain types of wisdom. And if that's the case, that ipso facto would make that into a conditioned state, right? Anything that's attained by doing certain things and isn't always already going on is by definition conditioned. It's just a synonym for conditioned. And by the logic just touched on, that means that it would also have to be a kind of suffering. And this is the problem I think the Mahayana in general is trying to solve in various ways. And all these schools of the Mahayana, including Tiantai and Zen, are finding ways uh, to rethink that. And this is already going on in the Mahayana scriptures. Um, so... When talking about any determinate entity in the Tiantai tradition, they will do a kind of threefold analysis. There are three ways of being dependent on otherness, on something other than what you are. The first one is um, through causal construction. And the examples given there are first, when you see an object, when you experience consciousness, there's a conjunction of diverse causes, like the object I'm seeing, that there's a guitar over there that I'm seeing, my eyeballs and my brain. These come into contact and something happens, an arising of an experience, which is called consciousness of the guitar. Those are the causes where they intersect is where this other third thing arises. So that's a way in which my consciousness of that thing is dependent on the thing and on my, me having a nervous system, uh, things which are different from that consciousness. The other example of this given is just a purely material one. And that's, in uh, Jury, the founder of Tentai uses the traditional example of a pillar, but any physical object will do, um, that is composed of parts. Right? It's composed of, in that case, he's talking about molecules uh, or the smallest reducible parts of something. And so this thing called a pillar exists only because the material elements that compose it, uh, which are different from pillarness, um, are um, internal to it. They're internal to it, but they're different from it in that I can do a kind of uh, aspect switch, kind of duck-rabbit switch, right, where I am seeing this as pillars. I can see my body as, as a human body, but I can also see it as energy and chemicals and molecules and all those other things. Those are different. Those are other. That means my body is dependent upon these other things. I mean, they're conceptually other. When I identify molecules, I'm doing something different from identifying a body, per se. So that's the first kind of dependence. The second kind that uh, Jiri, the founder of Tiantai, focuses on is succession in time. And that means there's a prior state, and it is the causal condition for the arising of a subsequent state. Usually he's talking about mental states. So I'm thinking about something, it's a premise, it's a, 
it's a prior condition. And then I have the next thought, which comes is caused by it. But you'll notice that in that case, uh, the first thing is replaced by the second thing. Right? So in other words, um, I notice something that I don't like, and then I have a feeling of dislike. Those are in succession. Uh, I'm uh, a moment two is um, uh, replaces moment one, but is caused by moment one. That's called the the the, the uh, dependent co-arising or provisional positing. They would say um, of succession. And the last one is the one I was referring to before, which really is all encompassing, which is simply of conceptual contrast: long versus short. Uh, hot versus cold, even being versus non-being, even conditioned versus unconditioned, even Buddhas versus sentient beings. And what that means is the pillar and the moment of consciousness and the second uh, successive state, but also any determinate thing, like being or non-being or longness or shortness, is dependent on what it excludes, what it is the opposite of in order to be identified in that particular way. Okay. Now, in Tentai, it's thought that all three of these apply to every single possible event or or object. And in fact, that they all ultimately entail each other. That is to say that the same kind of relation that a pillar has to the elements that make the pillar, or that a thought has to a prior thought, is the, the relation that a thing has to its contrasted opposite what is by definition external to it. And you see that something very weird happens when you bring those three together, right? Because what is definitionally external to the thing, right, coldness versus hotness, is now understood in the same way as the difference of the things that are internal to the thing, like the molecules in the pillar. That means I'm composed of all the things that I'm opposed to, contrasted with. And that any determinate entity is in this kind of condition. This is what it is to be something at all, to be any determinate thing. This is why in Tienta they talk about these kind of identity of opposites, or uh, in particular those between um, Buddhahood and delusion. Uh, what is internal to it is in tr- what is external to it is intrinsic to its being what it is, just like the molecules are intrinsic, though different from the pillar, to the pillar. Okay, why does any of this matter right now? I want you to bring all three of these together, and I'll give you one example that Jerry that likes to use to just show how this sort of escalates. He compare, I, I think we can collate this. He will say, just as you point to ice and call it water, that's like the dependent origination, uh, the, the uh, provisionality of, um, of causal uh, composition, right? Like the pillar and the, and the molecules. Uh, and then there's firewood and fire. And then there's the last pair he will give you is of bondage and liberation. And in all three cases, he says, the ice is the water, Okay, that one's easy to understand, right? It gets a little weirder if you say the firewood is the fire, right? But it gets very weird when you say, as Dury then goes on to say, the liberation is the bondage. The bondage is the liberation. And I I bring up those three different types of dependence because by bringing the three together, you could maybe track why we go from this relatively commonsensical 
notion of how two seemingly different things, ice and water, might ultimately turn out to be the same. But we get that sort of nuanced uh, and ramified in the other two examples of firewood and fire and uh, uh, liberation and bondage. That is because the, the contrast that defines them is now looked at in the same way as the water contrasted to the ice. All right, why do I go into all this? Because Jiri, reading the Lotus Sutra, um, follows and takes very seriously this claim that the, the real point of Buddhism, the only real end of suffering, is to experience the world as a Buddha experiences the world. And so he has to ask the question, how does a Buddha experience the world? What can we say about it? Can we conceive of what that is? And he sets up two different ways of experiencing this to get to the uh, to uh, where this is going to go is to say, well, all sentient beings are always already experiencing the world as a Buddha experiences the world. The ordinary deluded mind itself, if attended to uh, closely, is doing just what a Buddha is claimed to do. And of course, this is one of the ways to solve that problem of the unconditioned status of nirvana. Right, because it has to somehow turn out to have always been going on. Otherwise, it will be conditioned. It will be an object of clinging and pursuit. It will be an uh, an end pursued by through means, and therefore it will be suffering. Okay, so, and this was the passage I asked Tigan to send around to talk about. How are we going to define Buddhahood? He says. I want to cut the, the main meditation for doing this is to contemplate the mind, the contemplation of the mind, the ordinary mind, the arising and perishing mind, the mind of everyday experience. Um, and first, we're going to contemplate it in terms of the conceivable. We really want to contemplate the mind as inconceivable. Uh, but to do that, we have to do what we do when we contemplate anything. Look at the contrast. What's the contrast to the inconceivable? It's the conceivable. We're not going to understand the inconceivable until we first understand the conceivable. And you're going to see that inconceivable here cannot mean just a, sort of a blank cloud of unknowing with no contents in it, uh, but will be a different way of looking at the conceivable. So in the passage I asked you to look at, he says, okay, let's first look at the mind as conceivable. And conceivable, I would say you can simply understand to mean determinate, full stop. Okay, something that can be defined has uh, in certain boundaries, having certain characteristics and not other characteristics. That's to be thinkable. Uh, and now I'll look at the passage, right? First, we present the, con if you have the paper, I think this is um, page eight bottom of page eight. First, we present the contemplation of the mind as the inconceivable object. But this object is hard to talk about, so let us first explain all conceivable objects to make it easier to present the inconceivable object, which is your mind, the, the ordinary mind. Of conceivable phenomena, he goes on, even the Hinayana say that mind generates all phenomena, by which they mean the causes and effects of the cycle of the six paths of samsara all generated by the intentional karma of sentient beings. So he's saying the mind is seen to be sort of wonderful and uh, amazing and important, even in the Hinayana, in the very narrow sense that we're talking about rebirth, right? Re uh, 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 transmigration, 
through karma. And karma, we know in early Buddhism, is intention. So the mind creates states, it creates intentional deeds, and then you get born in different states. So that's the first sense in which he's going to now say, how is the mind the inconceivable object? It creates, it entails, and then finally, it is all things. Well, we get that from a, but it is so in an, in an quote-unquote, inconceivable way. Um, so he starts out by saying there's a conceivable sense of this, the first one, which is now he's going to walk us through all of Buddhism, and he's going to do it by determining through these contrasts what each of these conceptions means. So we start with that one, the mind producing various states of samsara. He goes on, quote, they then reject the ordinary and aspire to sageliness, dropping all of this, all of these conditioned states created by karmic acts of intentional mind. They drop all of this, emerge above it all, leaving only a withered body and extinguished consciousness. This is a typical Mahayana kind of diss of their conception of Hinayana, quote-unquote, practice, right? It ends with this unconditioned state, nirvana, where there's no consciousness, there's no body, insofar as those are conditioned, insofar as those are conditioned states, and they must be if they have any content at all. So all of that is gone. You have a pure blank or at least just a pure negation. Nothing can be said about it. Nothing can be thought about it. That's not the inconceivable, says Jerry. On the contrary, that's the most conceivable because it's simply a negation of all of samsara. And after all, a determination just is a negation. So he goes on and says, this is the Four Noble Truths considered as deliberate activity in Chinese, meaning that they have beginnings and ends in real time. That means I'm in samsara now, I'm going to do some stuff, I'm going to have some practices, and then eventually I'll reach this uh, inconceivable state called nirvana, totally unconditioned, at a certain point in time. That's conditioned. That's conceivable. He goes on and says, all such things of these are conceivables. Then he turns to the Mahayana, quote, Now, in the Mahayana, it is also said that mind generates all dharmas, by which is now meant the ten dharma realms. So now we have an extended, extended palette, not just, you know, the six. Traditionally, that would be purgatories, hungry ghosts, animals, asuras, sort of titans, human beings, and gods. Now we add four more, which are uh, the the Hinayana disciples, Shravakas, Pratyeka Buddhas, which are solitary Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and Buddhas. All of this is generated by the mind, okay? All of those things, just as all those karmic states and all those rebirths are done by the mind, now in the Mahayana it's, it's expanded, the kinds of states one could be born into, including this category Bodhisattva. But further than that, The nature of the mind and its so-called creation have changed. So he goes on. Contemplating the mind as existent, it is seen to have both bad and mental states. The bad are the cause and effects of the three evil paths of hells, hungry ghosts, and animals, while the good are the causes and effects of the three paths of asuras, humans, and gods. Okay, so now we're still talking about the six realms of samsara, just like in the previous case. Those do their intentional rebirths. But then... These six types are then contemplated as all being impermanent, arising and perishing constantly. The mind that 
because this contemplating is also seen to be changing with every thought, never dwelling for a moment. Further, both what contemplates and what is contemplated are conditioned arisings, and all conditioned arising is empty of self-nature. Such are the causes and effects of the two vehicles, Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas. So beyond even the so-called Hinayana, we have within the Mahayana practitioners of these paths, okay, with an expanded universe, but, and they are seeing things just in terms of the emptiness of self-nature. And you notice that now we include the mind that contemplates the impermanence and conditionality and suffering of all things and what it contemplates, and those are a pair. Those are a conditioned pair, subject-object, thinker-thought, right? Perceiver-perceived. As such, they're conditioned, and that means what? They are empty of self-nature. That is, they have no independent existence. It's very important to understand that having no, no, we're going to see in a moment, that doesn't just mean the negation that we had uh, in the Hinayana picture. But here... It still does mean that, but now it's been made imminent. So that pure negation of any qualities that we had just as a nirvana to be attained at some point in time is now the nature of all things precisely because they are dependently co-arisen. I think many of you are familiar with this turn of thought. And yet he says this is still this idea of an imminent nature of emptiness that's always already there, a nirvanic nature, that's still shravaka or pratyeka buddha, i.e. Hinayana practice, two-vehicle practice, now with a little bit of a Mahayana twist. But then we go to the next stage. I continue this quote. Contemplating this sort of emptiness of the two vehicles and this sort of being, so they see these six paths which, have, which are rising and perishing, and then they see that the nature of them all is empty, right? In their true nature, right? Contemplating this sort of emptiness and this sort of being as both trapped in the dualistic morass of these two extremes. So now the nature versus the appearance is another contrasted pair. Okay, this is going to be the bodhisattva path. There's a dualism between them. They appear, this is, sometimes you get this in uh, conventional two truths uh, language, in the, even in the Mahayana, right? There's, on the one hand, things are really empty, or there are these two vehicles who realize that emptiness, and on the other hand, there are beings trapped in nirvana. And seeing them both to be empty means that this is yet another condition co-arising of, of uh, contrasting states. So now a bodhisattva comes along. He sees both sides as trapped in the dualistic morass of these two extremes, either sinking into emptiness or obstructed by being. And because of that, Great compassion arises. Why does great compassion arise? Because these are both forms of suffering. Why are they both forms of suffering? Because they are conditioned. How are they conditioned? They are conditioned because they exclude each other. They are mutually different. They have separable, distinguishable identities, and whatever has something like that is going to be suffering. So bodhisattvas come, and then one enters into the provisional to transform and liberate beings. Though there is no body in reality, it being empty, one provisionally creates a body, a non-literal body, a phantasmic body, as it were. This is what bodhisattvas do, right? 
even in this body, realizing it to be ultimately empty, it is a phantasm. But on the other side, though there is no emptiness in reality, one provisionally speaks non-literally of emptiness. Thus does one guide and transform them all. These are the causes and effects of bodhisattvahood. And then finally, we get to a Buddha. Now notice that each of these stages so far has just been a contrast to the last one. We have the six realms of of samsara, then we have the negation of that. What is not all that? And we call that the shravakas, the Hinayana disciples. Then we look at those two as another conditional pair, and the negation of that pair, the second negation, is the realm of the bodhisattvas. Now we're going to get a third negation, in other words, a negation of the negation of the negation, which is where we get Buddhahood. What is that like? Contemplating these phenomena of both liberators and liberated, seeing each as precisely a phenomenon exemplifying the ultimate reality of the middle way, that's Zhong Dao Shi Xiang, all of them are thus known to be ultimately pure. And then Juri says this, who is the good and who is the evil? Who is the existent and who the non-existent? Who is the liberated and who is the non-liberated? All questions. That's his full exposition of Buddhahood. All dharmas are like this. These are the causes and effects of a Buddha. Now, this is very significant. It's really the main thrust of what I wanted to talk to you about, that the solution to that problem of conditionality that's put forth here is to say, it's not that the two sides disappear, the two conditioned states disappear, right? And in fact, we already have gone through these three negations where we have the conditioned states, and then looking at all conditionality as such, we negate that. That makes that whole state conditional, but the negation's also conditioned, right? By that negation, that contrast. Now we have the bodhisattvas who go and embrace both sides, right? That is to say, seem to try to unify them by being able to transform equally into both to undermine the duality between them. But here the point is, we can keep doing that step over and over again. We're always going to get another dualism, and then we're always going to try to unify it with another one. Every time we do that, we're just going to get a dualism and the unity, and it's going to form another dualism, right? And this is a common problem in the philosophy of religion, right? Conditioned, unconditioned. Now, those are opposites. I can say, well, the opposition between them, that makes them both conditioned. Now I'll do a third thing. We have a pretty clever one with the bodhisattvas, who now sort of can be both. But that still doesn't solve the problem. Why? Because there's one more dualism left. As Jerry says, the liberators and the liberated, the good and the evil, the suffering, the non-suffering, the existent and the non-existent, those two. Who is the liberated and who is the not liberated? In other words, it's this who, not the elimination of the contrast, they're still there, but this undecidability between the two sides about who is whom. And you can see that in the, in the logic of the contrast uh, definition by contrast, um, hot versus cold. If to be hot means being contrasted to and excluding cold or liberation and, and, uh, and uh, entanglement, um, the internality of the two sides ends up being symmetrical both ways. And it's in that... Um, unidentifiability of which, which preserves the difference between them, but which role is ever being played by which uh, becomes um, indeterminable. It is a bit, I often like to use the example here of a Mobius strip. 
Uh, some of you have heard me allude to this before. It's very useful, though, I think, right? You know what a Mobius strip is, right? You twist it one place, and it's a figure where at every single point, there's two opposed sides, right? You don't get rid of the two opposed sides. You don't just have a single flat surface. But if you follow through on either side, it ends up being the other side. They transform into each other. They're reversible, right? So there's never not two. Never not conditionality, never not difference, never not cause and effect. And yet, the question is always, how do you delineate which one is which? How do you separate them off from each other? And this applies to the Buddha now, who is said to, his contemplation is to contemplate bodhisattvas and their marks, their uh, target audience, and see that actually the bodhisattva activity could be understood as going on, the agency could be going on on either side of that. It will always flip as you define them against each other. And this is all very important because the the funny thing that next happens in this text is Jerry says, okay, that's inconceivability actually, right? That's what we mean by inconceivable, not uh, something beyond all designation, but all designation plus which is which, not no two sides of the Mobius strip, but the understanding that the more you separate them, the more you see their contrast, the more you, you uh, double down on following any one side, the more it sort of slips away and turns out to be the other side. And this is the really distinctive Kentai move, this kind of reversible move. Having said that, very almost mischievously, Turi goes on and he says, okay, so now you know what Buddhahood is supposed to be like. It's this state of who is which for all of these sets of pairs, okay? But then he says this, all these ten Dharma realms, including Buddhahood, in all their tangled connections from the shallow to the deep, emerge from the mind. Although this is all to be classed as belonging to the innumerable Four Noble Truths, that's Uliang Sidi, the Tentai scheme I won't get into, it is still the conceivable, this is not the focus of the present contemplation. So after going through all that, Jerry says, even that state of Buddhahood is still Buddhahood conceivable. Why conceivable? Because that subjective state of knowing the who, knowing that there's no way to determine which is which, is defined by its, its uh, contrast to the previous four states. To be a Buddha is somehow different from being a Bodhisattva, from being a Shravaka, a Hinayana disciple, from being a being in hell. How do we get beyond that? Because then we just have the same problem again, with the anti-upped immensely of another dualism, therefore conditionality, therefore suffering. Right? If Buddhahood in any way at all is a state that has to be specially attained and is not always already going on, um, it's going to be suffering. So now we get to the main Tendai contemplation. Tegan, I don't know how much more time I have. I, I'll try to do a quick summary where this is going, maybe, and we can reserve the rest for Q&A. <clears throat> what he does then, though, is really fascinating. He says, the mind creates all these things. We said that in the sense of karma before, where everyone has their own track. Everyone has their own identity, okay? I do certain things, I've attained the state of Buddhahood. Or I've done certain things, I got to be a bodhisattva. Now I can liberate and see that both sides are a dualism that I can embrace both, both ends of. But if all of them are created by the mind, he turns it to the subjective experience of 
our own thinking about those different states. He says, all of them emerge from the mind, and he quotes a passage. I know some of you are doing Avatamsaka Sutra readings. This is a line from, unfortunately, the old translation into Chinese, so it, it gets a little bit obscured in the more recent translation, but there's a line that says, the mind is like an artist creating all types of five skandhas. Okay? Sao zhong zhong wu yin in Chinese. Zhong zhong, for those of you who know Chinese. The stress there is on the variety, the multiplicity of sentient beings. The mind is an artist that creates not just this sentient being, but all kinds of different sentient beings. So I'm some particular sentient being, a human, maybe a little bit of a hell being at, at times, whatever, a hungry ghost. But my mind, knowing myself to be any of those states, is doing what? The same thing contrasting it to other possible alternate states of other sentient beings. So I'm sitting here thinking about, oh, I'm in hell, but I could be a shravaka or a god or this other thing, which I am not. And when I realize my hell-ishness, I am in that very same moment of contrast, realizing both sides of the things defined in it. And that's what the mind does. And the, the essence of this Tiantai meditation then takes that and runs with it hard. Because what happens next is that three of them will go through every imaginable type of sentient being in great detail. It's like reading uh, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass a little bit. You get these long lists of all these different types of people, and you're sort of being led to imaginably engage. What is it like to be a hell being? What does it look like? What's its nature? What does it do? What kind of place does it live in? Blah, 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 right? What is it like to be a god? Like this, like this. The mind is creating all these things. What does it mean by creating them? Just thinking about them. Just imagining them. Just as I'm imagining me being me. And I'm doing it in the contrast, identifying all these different possible states as I'm reading the text. So we are actually being encouraged to deploy the imaginative faculty to try to imagine every possible state and their contrast to each other that define them, and yet all of them as something that lack all these defining contrasts that I'm defining away from me as my opposite, as what defines me by contrast, as something done by me. In other words, intrinsic to each moment of thinking about them. And it's from there that Jerry goes to his famous thing, which you may have encountered in your reading or in your practice, this idea that in one moment of experience, any moment, entails all 3,000 realms. 3,000 realms means all the different types of sentient beings, all thinking about each other, all contrasting to each other, all getting their identities from each other. And the key here is that, you remember I said successive moments of thought, are just like the the uh, the pillar and its its compo- uh, the, the uh, molecules that compose it, and that's just like the contrast between being me and being someone else, right? Being this rather than being that, right? That was where we started. When I contemplate those things, including contemplating a Buddha, as I just did, there's someone who looks on all this and sees our identities as in undecidable. That means he sees me and his identity as undecidable. But it's me who's thinking about and defining myself in contradistinction to as failing to meet up to the mark of that Buddha. And in so doing, I create him. The Buddha and the deluded mind create each other, you might say here. And there's this 
the same kind of flip-flop reversibility that we had in those other cases now applies here, which is to say, I can always see all that exists as it is seen through the eyes of a Buddha that I'm imagining, and that will include myself. But I also can see all things that exist, including the Buddha, as merely conceivable, right? Which is to say, as something separate from me. And, and when I do that, they're all suffering, including Buddhahood. If Buddhahood exists independently of the hell or of me, it is suffering. If Buddhahood does not inherently entail as part of its identity all those different things, it is suffering. But it is contemplation of my own mind thinking that thought and the prospective future and past moments that also are outside of this thought, things I can imagine in the future, things I could experience in the future, things I've experienced in the past, but constitutive to this present moment of thinking in exactly that same way. There's a little more detail about this in the, uh, in the paper we could go into. But this, this ends up being the way this is to be done. So a deliberate looking at, um, Jury compares it, I think another very useful comparison. He says, okay, basically the instruction is this. Now, I've told you what Buddhahood would be like if such a thing existed. It would be the opposite of the opposite of the opposite of conditioned existence. Three negations, right? Okay. You thought that thought now? And what thought does is compare and negate. Okay, now you've thought that thought. Now think about you thinking that thought, that moment when you thought that thought. And now think about all the other states that that is not. Okay, all those worlds, whatever you can imagine, go nuts, right? Have at it. Imagine every possible state you could or couldn't or want or don't want, okay? And then... The relation between all those contents and you as you are now thinking them in this one particular moment is, he says, like the relation between a changing thing and the phases of its change. You might say, again, one of those reversible relationships, okay? It arises, dwells, diminishes, perishes. He says, if those were prior to the thing or posterior to the thing, the changing thing would not be changing. The thing just is its process of change. In the same way, I just am, the, I the thinker just am all those thoughts. But that doesn't, again, mean in an eliminative way where there's no thinker, just thoughts. It means who is the thinker, who is the thought. Right? In other words, I can flip, I can do this reversal where I'm imagining all these things, including a Buddha. But in imagining a Buddha, I am imagining and experiencing, in contrast to myself, that point of view that cannot distinguish between my point of view and his point of view. And when that happens, I'm seeing both, I can either see my thinking of the thoughts as being done by the thoughts, thought, the Buddha that I posit, positing me or the reverse, me positing them both. And there's that Mobius strip again. And that, when I can say who is positing whom, who is contemplating whom, is the only way to attain the unconditioned, the end of suffering, what it is like to be a Buddha, in the sense of inconceivable. So the interesting thing about that is, inconceivable is actually really deploys a lot of conceiving. In fact, it encourages maximal thinking and imagining even, right? And the, the production of thoughts and comparisons and contrasts and colors and sights and sounds and conditions and causes. It would not be unconditional if it lacked those things. 
But of course, it would not be unconditioned if it just had those things. So this recontemplation of the reversibility of the relation of the thinker and all thoughts, so that they end up in this which is which. And of course, there's no answer. The question is the answer there, right? The reversibility of uh, what one is and all the other things one is or could imagine being instead is the only way to find the inconceivable Buddhahood. And by the way, it turns out to be just what's going on all the time already in the ordinary mind. One last remark, I know I'm out of time, but but the, the in Tentai practice, and this, this maybe is a more practical kind of um, point, um, we get a theoretical discussion, right, about uh, emptiness and dependent co-arising and how mutually exclusive things uh, actually are, are um, uh, entailed in one another. But the point of the meditation practice is to observe, not on a theoretical level, but to see that that is actually a, a good description of at least one particular thing we have in our experience all, all along, which is our mind itself. And that its way of relating to its contents, in other words, our experience itself, if you prefer, right, to um, the past and the future, you know, in a very simple-minded way, we could just say, um, you know, the present has to be different from both the past and future in order to be different. To experience the present as presence, you have to be able to experience it as different from past and future. But to experience present as different from past and future, you have to be able to compare present to past and future. And to be able to compare them, you have to be aware of them both. And to be aware of them both, they both have to be present, right? So the past and the future, the modes of pastness and futureness, must both be internal to the present moment of experience and must be excluded from it, i.e. different from it. If either of those conditions fails, you have no present moment, you have no experience, right? And so by observing the way one moment of thinking relates to other past moments of thinking or being in this state relates to other states, all of them have that relationship, right? I'm not a Buddha now, but I'm thinking about the fact that I'm not a Buddha means I'm thinking about what a Buddha is. And if I'm doing that, I have that same relation where it must be both internal and external to my thought about it. And that is the inconceivability of Buddhahood, which is the inconceivable object, which is the mind. And I'll stop there. Right at 11. Um, so we have some time for comments, questions, responses. Please feel free, David Ray, maybe you can help with uh, people online, and uh, please just... Uh, I see Zengu's hand. Hello? Hi. Hi. Um, um, you know, I want to uh, <laughs> I want to speak up for, for the, the Zen side of things, I guess. Uh, I'm, I'm a student of Dogen, and Dogen sees it a little bit differently in that there is, there is samsara and there's nirvana, and the two are not different. The only thing different about them is the way that they are perceived. But then there's the third state, which, which is beyond them, which, which is the inconceivable. The inconceivable is not, is, is just that, the inconceivable. It's the prajna paramita. 
there's there's it's um it's not part of it's not part of Buddhahood in that sense. Um, hmm. Anyway, I think that's the main the main the main point where we where where, where Dogen would differ from your your presentation is that that samsara and, and, and nirvana are one and that there's and that the and that there's a, a state that's beyond that that state um which is the inconceivable which is the project of paramita which is um um the 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 unknowable that's which i find but i find very interesting because it, it that that state seems very close to quantum mechanics to me but that's a whole other conversation um, interesting. interesting. That, that, that's outside of this realm, maybe. But um, um, the main the main point that I'm interested in is the is the concept in our teaching of uh, the, the two the dualism form and emptiness. Form is ep- emptiness. Emptiness is form. Form is form. Emptiness is emptiness. And then the third the, or the fifth, which is not spoken of often. Is neither form nor emptiness, which I think is this state that you've been describing of this this thinking, the non the non thinking thinking, or anyway, it's very hard to, to put words to. <clears throat> and, and the more you, you've gone, you've been very valiantly trying to define it, which I think comes as close as anybody possibly can using words. But it's um, it's 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 anyway. That's that's the nature of our practice is to understand that leaping clear of the many and the one. Um, but the part that I would like to bring up, the part that I'm interested in, is this this wisdom beyond wisdom that also is part of the picture in my understanding. Thank you. Thank you for that comment. It's interesting. Um, we may interpret Dogen a little differently, but uh, I, I don't necessarily see it that way when I read Dogen, but um, I'll just take, take your reading for the moment. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think the neither nor point. I mean, thinking about non-thinking, for example, in Dogen is a really good example of, uh, a, to my eyes, a kind of adaptation of some of the, the Tendai ideas that we've been talking about, which is to say it's not not thinking. It's thinking of non-thinking, right? And it, it's, it, and so the, the problem is always going to be um, if we take all those neither nor statements, neither form nor emptiness, for example, or the inconceivable in Prashna Paramita, um, simply as um, uh, the clearing away of all content, let's say, we're going to have um, to this way of thinking that that, that uh, I've been talking about today, and that in my I kind of read Dogen as being rather in line with, but this could be a textual discussion. Um, we well, will just have another, me, we'll just I, have I, another I, dualism, right? Between the I, I, I'm not reading Dogen. I'm, I'm getting this from my teachers. I'm not. Is not. I'm not a scholar, so okay. I don't. I don't. Okay. Uh, okay. <clears throat> but anyway, that, that's that, this has always been handed down to me from my hmm. teachers. I'm not. I'm not really reading Dogen per se. I mean, I do read Dogen, but I'm not a. You know, I don't read. I don't read Chinese. I'm not. I don't read ancient. I don't read Sino Japanese. Um, I just, I'm just yeah. a practitioner. <clears throat> well, Dogen, as we know, is notoriously difficult to interpret, and so I mean, I'm sure there are a diversity of opinions on how to read him. So, I mean, I, I just say um, whether it's Dogen's view or not, there is that view in, in Buddhism for sure. 
um, which is to say, you know, you would have, so two things that you mentioned, one would be samsara and nirvana are the same thing, but they're viewed in two different ways, right? And the second thing would be beyond that, there's some other third thing called the inconceivable, right? That's beyond the entire nirvana, samsara. Uh, that's, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, if you want, I can respond to where that would be subject to criticism from Tantai thinkers. Um, what I suspect you would say about that is, A, you're going to get, there is that view, it's a very prominent view, right? Samsara and Nirvana are two names for one object. Now, the issue that comes up there is the relation between the naming or the viewing and the object. Are they two separate things? Are they two definite things? Or is it entailed in that object that it must be always viewable in both of those ways? In which case, it's not simply a case of, you know, we, we tend to model that, oh, I can look at this from here, I can look at this from here. It's the same object. But that's when we're thinking the viewing of the thing and the thing are two completely separate entities. Well, it's an experience, it's an experience. The experience, is that they're exactly the same, but just the experience of them is different. There's right, no but different is, the, is the experience different from the thing experienced is the question. I mean, if it isn't, then, then everything's, everything's different from the thing experienced. I mean, that's the nature. That's, of, that's, well, that's, that's the that's, nature of mind. That's the point of contention here. I think we would claim on this on the anti side that's not really the case. Just as there are no separable things, right? There cannot be simply a thing which just is what it is, and then added on to that ontologically different views of that thing. It being able to be seen as these different things is, if you like, folded into the definition of what it is. Because the, And the reason what motivates that is exactly this same problem. Because if you don't do that, you end up with a, a real dualism between these two things, which makes both of them absolutely conditioned. So if I simply have the choice, I can either view it in an enlightened way or a deluded way, I still have a dichotomy between enlightenment and delusion. And if that's well, the that- they're they're both they're both conditioned states. I mean, but I mean that's not that's not different. Well, I mean, in other words, in other words, to say that nirvana is samsara on this reading is motivated by the idea that well, if it isn't and it has to, it's sort of a different place or thing. No, no, that's exactly exactly the same. It's just that, that seeing this exactly. one sees it's, and one the sees reason, it's empty, one yes. sees it's empty, and the other one see, thinks it's real. That's right. But the reason that the Mahayana philosophy develops that idea of the pre-existence of nirvana to say it's not a different thing from samsara is because if it were a different thing, then it would be conditioned and then it would be suffering. But the problem is if you do that and you just think of that in terms of, well, it's there, but then there's my view of it that can come and go, you have a dualism between the deluded state and the enlightened state. And that dualism is just as bad. This is what this there's, there's no there's no dualism there. There's no dualism there because it's because it's it's, it's empty it, because there's no attachment to to it. It it, it, is, it just exists. You're, the the viewing of the world as either samsara or nirvana we're talking about, right? Right. It's an either or question, right? No, they're identical, and and, okay. it's, and it's purely. It's purely whether you think that one is, whether you see yeah, it as, as real. Think of it one, but do you think of it one way or the other? Are those mutual? Well, well, of course, inevitably, that's, that's inevitably you bring in your karmic, you know, it all depends on how, how, how clear your, how, 
how much you live in the moment, how clear your mind is, how how much of your karmic thread you bring into the situation. I mean, the, the question is whether thinking of it one way is really ultimately different from thinking of it the other way. Just on the level of the thinking, not the thing thought about. That one is the same. We've established that, right? But is to regard it as A, the same or different from to regard it as B, those two acts? Now, if they're empty, which is the next step of that ladder, you could say, well, ultimately they are non-different because they're empty, then you have a different dualism, and that dualism between, is between how they appear and how they really are. They're well, really how they, empty, how, how they, they appear, really in, in Zen, the, the difference is between expecting something to happen and being surprised by something happening. Uh-huh. That's, the, that's the classical example where, where you, you have expectations that are never met, yeah. Are you? Are you? Or are, are you? Or every moment is a is a new surprise. Yeah, I think that, and that one we can we can maybe come to some agreement. That's on the phenomenological level, uh, uh, and I think that's a useful way to maybe get at some of the implications here. But the the I'm not sure all of that will be resolved until the uh, there is this kind of cat in the hat comes back problem. Right where every time you remove a dualism on one level, it comes back on the next level. That's kind of what this passage is dealing with. So, you know, and it can be very subtle. It gets to the point of, well, there's this kind of experience, but then there's this other kind of experience, right? There's this living in the moment experience, and then there's this this um, uh, occupied with past and future or something like that, right? The, 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 this is the kind of thing that worries the Tiantai tradition, others. Leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I don't, I don't, I don't see. That. I, I mean, I don't quite understand that. That's, okay, I mean, that's a here's another way in which this is very relevant to Dogen, though. I mean, I think the entire, you know, kind of founding move in Soto Zen, which is not to think of practice as a means by which you attain enlightenment, right, is part of this this uh, <clears throat> this ethos here, which is to say. If you're thinking of practice, ends and means, practice and enlightenment is two different things, uh, you're thinking of this in, a, in an obstructing way, in a dualistic way, right? Correct. So, so you can't think the stage of practice is different from the stage of enlightenment. Now, True. that can be understood in a number of ways. And the next step in the Tintai view of things would be to say, and what is practice? Not just Zazen, but what we just said about practice and enlightenment, in Tiantai they will say, all the nine states of existence are causes of Buddhahood. So hell is a cause of Buddhahood. Devas are a cause of Buddhahood. It's all practice. And if that's the case, and then the non-duality of practice and enlightenment is applied, you have something, maybe that's a point of contact and divergence in the two traditions. Something they actually have in common historically, though. I would say. Well, I, I, I think the way I mean, the, the way I was taught was that that only the human realm, out of the out of the six realms, is able to is able to yes, to, that's to see to see to see to see the the the, the emptiness of of, of, of causation. Of, yes, that's right. Of, but there are there are prior causes to every realm, right? So every human has also been caused to be that by prior states, which would be non-human. So all of that is part of the causality. I mean, this is Lotus Sutra stuff. Yes, right? that's all, yeah, true. Yeah. So you may have to be, you know, the you know the dragon girl in the Lotus Sutra, right? There's a lot of things that you're only supposed to be a human 
to be a Buddha? And he says, well, yeah, you can do that, but you only have to be a human for like a split second, right? So is the dragon girl practicing Buddhism? Yes. Is that a cause leading to enlightenment? Yes. Now, if practicing enlightenment or not too, that's part of the story too. But in that story, she's still deliberately practicing Buddhism. In Tiantai, they want to extend that a little more to say, now, sit here practicing Buddhism, but imagine all those times when you weren't practicing Buddhism and all those other creatures, sentient beings who aren't practicing Buddhism, all of those are involved now too. You can't disentangle which one of you is the one practicing Buddhism. Right? Well, in the realm of, of Prajnaparamita, I mean, everything, everything is practicing Buddhism. Yes. So there you go. It's a question maybe of how that relates to the other two realms. Are they, are they really different or is, are those actually... I know we're running out of time and I've monopolized the time a lot here, but do you have any, any feeling at all about modern physics and, 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 and uh, you know, centuries no. old? old no, I, 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 don't, I don't feel qualified to talk about modern physics. I, I feel like it's, of course, really fascinating. And I, you know, I'm I'm open to the idea that it certainly sounds to me as a scientific layman that, um, you know, and there are a lot of resonances there to Mahana philosophy of various kinds, absolutely. But I would, I, I'm very hesitant to say anything about it because uh, I am not a, a scientist. I don't, I, you know, I would be, I would be, uh, I don't have deep enough knowledge of physics to really See Unfortunately, the scientists are not are not Buddhists, so it's hard for the two to, to join. That's true, but maybe we'll get some, right? Maybe we'll maybe there will be people who are you know uh, very schooled in both sides sooner or later. Not quite. I don't know. We have them yet. Anyway, thank not, you, though. thank you very much. I deeply appreciate your your okay. response. Uh, we have time for maybe one or two more comments or questions. Is there one in the chat? Anastasia has. Her hand up at one point. Anastasia, are you here? Yes. Maybe not. Is there is there another question in in the room? I have a question, but if yeah, go ahead, David. All right. So, um, first off, thank you for that so much. It was it was such a wonderful wild wild ride, sort of like putting rice in a in a uh, coffee grinder to clean it. It really felt great, like a mind scrub. I really appreciate it. Um, and I want the new people to know that our, our, our Dharma talks are not generally these wild intellectual rides. That was amazing. Um, um, so my question is about emptiness. Um, I'll say that um, I'm, a, I'm a kind of, I don't know, emptiness fanboy. Uh, we have an Agarjuna <laughs> reading group. And I know that in American Zen, it's not just here at Ancient Dragon, one finds various ways of sort of defanging emptiness and saying, oh, don't worry, it's not really emptiness, it's spaciousness. Spaciousness. Oh, don't worry, it's not really emptiness, it's really fullness, because it's full. Um, but the way that you told that philosophical story, emptiness sounded like it was really crucial so my question is, what, what would you say if somebody said to you, you don't need the category of emptiness and you could get there with just dependent co-arising? Why is it so important to come to the place of saying that, that all dharmas are important by emptiness of self-being? Oh, that's great. Thank you very much for that question. All right. Let, let, me, uh, let me try this from a couple of angles. The first one, uh, I, I can think of two that I think often come up in this context that I think are especially important. One is, sometimes you hear people talking about dependent co-arising just as sort of interdependence, 
right? Which just means, you know, what, what affects me affects all other things and what affects all other things uh, affects me. All things affect each other, right? Any, any materialist would also admit this, right? There's nothing particularly special about that view, right? If you're not committed to sort of an Aristotelian metaphysics, it's almost trivial, right? If there is causality among things, then all things are dependent on each other, fine. Um, besides the fact that that does nothing, people sometimes will try to deploy that as if it has some kind of ethical significance, right? Which is to say, hey, we're all dependent on each other, so we should be ecologically conscious and so on. But that principle does not lead to that conclusion. I mean, we might be dependent on each other in the sense that my gain is your loss, right? That's still a kind of dependence. What happens is a zero-sum game, and the more you suffer, the better off I am. That's a kind of mutual dependence, okay? Right? So that doesn't do... I, to me, that doesn't do very much at all. Emptiness, and this is part I skipped over, but it's in the paper, right? It's, to me, very important to understand emptiness doesn't just mean, okay, I a thing here that, okay, so this is a pair of glasses, okay, but it's empty. But it really is a pair of glasses and not, say, an elephant or a, a giraffe or something like that, right? Of course, this is dealt with by conventional truth in in Nagarjuna, arguably in Prashnaparamita literature, in Indian Mahayana Buddhism generally, right? Which is to say, it has an identity conventionally, but in ultimate truth, it has no identity at all, right? The thing about emptiness as it's understood in Tiantai, and I would say this is probably the case for, you know, Tiantai is the founding East Asian school. So almost everything that happens in the rest of China, Korea, Japan, in Buddhism, there are there are deliberate pushbacks, but they're all influenced by Tiantai in one way or another. The Tiantai view, I always want to insist that emptiness be understood as ambiguity. Not even merely as indeterminacy, but that means it's not merely that, and, and that contrastive type of dependent co-arising drives this point home, right? That jury analyzes it that way. It's not just dependent on causes, and then it is what it is, and then in a different sense, it's not. One, two, right? It's that um, anything is determined as named as that particular thing, only dependent on the conditions of what it is being contrasted to. And there are an infinite number of contexts. I mean, the, the way I usually like to do this is just to, like, you know, draw an O, a circle, on the board and then say, what is this, right? Then people say, it's a, oh, it's a circle. And then you can put a negative two and a negative one and a one and a two around it, and they go, oh, it's a zero, right? And then you can put an M and an N, and a P and a Q, and then they say, oh, it's, an, it's the letter O. And then you can draw two more triangle circles, and you can say, oh, it's the vertex of a triangle, right? That's emptiness. It's not just the emptiness of a substance. It's an emptiness of an essence, of an identity, of a definite characteristic that identifies it. It's being identified as glasses or as O or as zero is dependent on conditions, okay? So it's not just a yes, no. Well, in one sense, there's only one meaning it has. That's what Jiri is just talking about, the infinite meanings, idea, right? It's context-dependent. It doesn't have an identity. And I say ambiguity rather than indeterminacy because 
the other interesting point here is that, you know, as per se, the emptiness of emptiness, that has to be understood that even emptiness is something determinate, but therefore indeterminate. Not you have the determinate and then you have the indeterminate. One is the appearance, one is the reality or something like that, right? No, on the contrary, I can talk about the ambiguity of a thing, but that ambiguity if I'm thinking it, if I'm naming it, if I'm pointing to it, it's determinate. But like every other determinate thing, it's indeterminate, like that circle. Not because there's nothing there or because it's a fuzzy blank or because it's, you know, some kind of, uh, 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 you know, in, uh, unclear thing. Because fuzziness is determinate. Blankness is determinate. All of them are. Nothing that isn't determinate. And nothing that isn't, sorry about that, and nothing that isn't indeterminate. That's the cantire. That's what they call emptiness provisional positing. So that's, that's the first point and the second point. The, the, and just mere dependence doesn't get you very far because the identity stays the same. Okay. The second thing is um, that, you know, the, the role of negation, as I said a moment ago, is very important here to get from the imminence of just being a conditioned being is to be negated by other things, right? Which is to say to not be something else, right? So this is glasses because it's not a, a, a coffee cup among and everything else, right? So that, that function of negation is already there. And this is one way you can get the imminence of that negation function that gets you Buddhahood, as I said, not by sort of adding it in, but just by saying things are already negating each other. Now negate that whole realm of mutually negating things by identifying it. Now negate those two, and now negate those two. And there you have it, right? You, do, you, do, you, you are not having to sort of artificially import Buddhahood into conditionality that way. So... To me, it's very important that we keep emptiness. It's true that Tintai wants to say emptiness of emptiness, that's the middle way, which is the, in, the ambiguity of emptiness and provisional positing, both. But it has to be both, like that Mobius strip, you know. It can't just be, oh, it's all just dependent. It just doesn't take you very far, I don't think. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to reading your paper. I think Anastasia might be back and, and ready for her, for her question. Great. Well, it was actually, thank you very much. It was actually more of a comment than a question. So as a uh, a newer person to all of this, specifically American Zen, um, I, I, I feel like I just went to church and I listened to a philosopher as opposed to uh, the preacher, which means I'm so much more confused. And that's okay. Confusion is okay. But um, uh, yeah. I just, it, that was, I'm sort of in a state of confusion at this very moment. And I think when I sat and got clear, clear, now I'm a little bit more boggled. So maybe I'll go back and sit some more after, after this so I can do a little brainwash, a different kind of brainwash that David wanted. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. Okay, thank you for that comment. I think it's really important too, which is just to say, um, you know, that's one of the interesting things about Buddhist practice. It is this back and forth, right, between these two sides. You get a Dharma talk, you have some sort of really heady kind of sutra reading, or maybe, and then you get sort of a ritual thing, and you get a silent sitting, or you get just sitting, right? And uh, Dogen's really great on this point, too, right? I mean, if you look at the way he, he organizes his 
discourses on the one hand and then she cantaza on the other, right? How do those two pieces fit together? That's right. what I think part of the process. Right? I was curious. I didn't hear this one way or the other, but are you are a scholar? I know that. Are you also a practitioner? Oh, I'd say so. I'm probably not as good a practitioner as some of the people here, but uh, I, I do my best. We have a contest. <laughs> of course. I, I think Yozan has a question. Yes, good morning, and thank you very much. Um, I hope this isn't a sort of an how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of question. But I'm thinking about passages in Dogen. And uh, there's a passage where he says something to the effect, uh, a fully realized Buddha does not necessarily know he's a fully realized Buddha. And then later, there says something like, um, uh, you know, realization might not be experienced as an object of consciousness. And there's a little fuzziness there, because one is like, doesn't necessarily, might. It, it seems like he's leaving the possibility that um, being a Buddha um, can involve a kind of consciousness. And, and with the what you presented this morning, as I was trying to follow it, it sounded like, you know, you get these oppositions um, and the opposition is resolved by, you know, you step step back. Um, and in that stepping back, uh, a new opposition is created. And, you know, it sounded like in the, in the, I may have misunderstood, but as you were presenting it, things kind of grounded out at a third remove. There's a negation of a negation of a negation. Am I understanding that correctly? And, and, and then the, the, the part of this is, is that if they are not claiming that, you know, it seems to me like it would have to entail an infinite regress and that it could never be grounded except in a kind of unconsciousness. Um, can you, is this even yeah. a question? Yes, this is a great question. Okay, first thing I would say, yeah, the negation, 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 that's still the realm of the conceivable, says Jerry in that passage, right? And so the, the exactly right, which is to say it really doesn't solve the problem, he thinks. And so the, the, the next step is really kind of a jump into the contemplation of the mind thinking, doing the conceiving, and its relation to those various contents. So he thinks you can break that infinite regress right there. It's very interesting that you bring up those passages in Dogen. I think those are super important too. And I, I, I'll tell you that I read them. Uh, Tigan may disagree with me. I don't know. But I mean, a lot of that stuff in Dogen, I read as a sort of brilliant neo Tendai exegesis on Zen sources. Okay. So, um, and in that case, you know, one of the things that happens in, um, the, the, at, in the paper, I, after talking about jury, I quote a long passage from a guy named Jamran from a text called The Diamond Scalpel. And his whole argument in that text is that insentient beings have the Buddha nature. Okay? Which is to say, and part of the way he argues that is exactly along the lines we've been talking about, because let's talk about the relationship between consciousness and unconsciousness. It's another pair. And Jamran says, you know, uh, 
all consciousness is also involved in what is excluded from it qua consciousness, namely unconsciousness, and vice versa. And the Buddha is the one who's aware of his consciousness and his unconsciousness, and sentient beings are not aware of that, the inseparability of consciousness and unconsciousness. You can say unconsciousness, uh, insentient beings, tiles and pebbles and so on, right? But don't think of that as something absolutely separate from consciousness. It's not. It never has been, right? But on the other hand, don't think of consciousness as something absolutely separate from unconsciousness. It's not. It never has been, you know? Mm. You've never existed in a world that didn't have consciousness in it. It just didn't happen, Okay, and so the, the, the point here is that where you draw the lines between things is done by your consciousness, your deluded consciousness, and that's what makes you call certain things conscious or unconscious. So in the viewpoint here, we would say when, when Dogen says that kind of thing, for example, you might be a Buddha right now and not be aware of it. And in fact, you must be a Buddha right now and not being aware of it. You will be realizing that at a later moment in time, Maybe when you're doing shikantaza or when you're doing anti-mind contemplation or something else. But that moment in time is not separate from this moment in time. It's not different from, I should say, this moment in time. They're internal to each other. So all those past and future states, like when I was sleeping this morning, is part of what's going on right now, is internal to. And that's why uh, Jury says this and Dogen says this in many ways. When one Buddha becomes a Buddha, all things are Buddha, right? When one moment of enlightenment happens, all things are enlightened. Jiri says, when one thing is a Buddha, all are Buddha, and when one is a demon, all are demon. And both of those are always happening. That's why the ten realms are always intertwined. So when you do zazen or when you do meditation, you are realizing the Buddhahood that has always existed, but it's only always existed when you're doing it. You know, the uh, Genzo Koan, right? Yeah. Ends with that story about fanning the monk fanning himself, right? He says, the nature of wind is everywhere. Why do you fan yourself? He says, it reaches everywhere. Why do you, it's, it's omnipresent, reaches everywhere. Why do you fan yourself? He says, you understand it being omnipresent, you don't understand how it reaches everywhere. Well, how, what does that mean? And he just keeps fanning himself, right? You know that story. So the point there is it does reach everywhere when you, it's the solution to the, the Dogen's very original, but really anti-based, in my opinion, view of time as a way of solving the original enlightenment story. Mm-hmm. All beings are enlightened, but that past is not simply a past that sits there being the past. Every moment has its own past. Every moment has its own future. When you are doing Zazen, You've made the path, which is internal to that present, all enlightenment. And that means all those other states you've been in that you're imagining or remembering are now all seen to have been Buddhahood. You come out of Zazen, then even your Zazen was just a stupid thing you did to waste time on a Sunday afternoon, right? So uh, and both of those are always going on. That's, that's the uh, inconceivable state of Buddha. That's how I would understand it. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. We're, we're sort of out, out of time, but um, this is such an opportunity. Uh, let's have one more comment. Juan Pablo, thank you for joining us. I think that Eve might have had her oh. hand up, but okay. Well, well, let's let's have a couple more. We'll go, we'll go so, uh, let me see if I can get um, Eve on the camera and 
And then I'm going to try to pin you. Let's see if that works. Why? You don't need to. <laughs> well, just keep talking. I'm uh, going to do the, do the audio, the video. Yeah. Anyway, I'm interested in the implications of the line of argument that you laid out for right action um, and for thinking about or not thinking about the relationships between conscious purpose, um, intention, and, and action. And I mean, for one thing, it seems to me that um, the, the way of, of thinking that, that you laid out, that it draws a different kind of... It, um, it's different than the ways we conventionally in the West draw lines between thinking and action. I mean, for one thing, you're saying the way you draw lines or don't draw lines has has consequences. Yeah. Um, and so I'm interested in what it means to be mindful of those consequences and then what that has to do with, like I said, how to think or not think about. A, about you know going back to the ends and means thing, how to think or not think about. Um, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, I mean that the ends and means thing, of course. That, uh, as I was saying, you know, part of the the view of the inconceivable here is that it does not eliminate the distinctions, nor does it eliminate cause and effect, um, even karmic cause and effect. So, um, right, it's like the two sides of the Mobius strip. They're still there, right? That would mean cause and effect. That would mean means and ends and so on. It's just that when you reach a certain point, you realize <laughs> everything in the means was in the end and, and vice versa. You still have to traverse it to do that. In fact, John, the same text I was just talking about has a really interesting line I, I think is kind of illuminating about that. You know, he says, look, when any Buddha becomes a Buddha, all beings are he looks around and all he sees is Buddhahood. It's all the inalienable self and environment of a Buddha. And that includes you. And that includes all your actions, right? And that includes all those things as seen by a Buddha. And that will include all the beings in hell and all the non-right actions and all that stuff too, in Tentai at least. They're very emphatic about that. But sentient beings themselves draw lines around themselves while dwelling in what they, they imagining a Buddha, imagining themselves, they would see themselves as part of that Buddha. But normally, we, we um, living and dying in the, as part of the life of the Buddha, to put it sort of crudely, but that is how they will put it, um, all of it is life of the Buddha. And yet, if we separate ourselves off and regard ourselves as individual beings, thinking that what we undergo and what we do are simply the actions from a single cause to a single purpose to a single effect, not seeing the way they ramify into all their opposites, um, then we, of course, qua that person, undergo those consequences. And we see those consequences in the same monolithic way that we were seeing the causes. It's not that the causes and the effects go away when we see them in the, in the sort of more expensive way. It's just that when we do draw those lines, as you put it, that way about the cause, we also do that about the effect. And so we're in this one-to-one one -one sort of causal, like, like his first level there when he's talking about the Hinayana, right? You have karmic acts and they have uh, consequences. Well, that's always going to be true. It's, it's not that that's ever erased with an eraser or something, just like the two sides of the Mobius strip. But now that's all seen to be the activity of a Buddha. It might be him in the form as, you know, the one piece of this is the upaya piece. 
the skillful means piece, right? And so, you know, all every possible thing, because things have no self-nature, because they are ambiguous, can be, when you trace its causal nectar far enough, deployed for good or for evil, for, for suffering or for non-suffering. It's a question of the skill in doing that, and that has a lot to do with expanding the context in which it's deployed, right? So the bodhisattvas use all these different methods, right? Some of them are very quirky or questionable, but it's a question of, of knowing how to do them. The wager here, I'd say, is that by uh, uh, repositioning even our individual acts in this immense view where they have all these, they, they are not separate from any of those other types of states, causes, and effects, um, their, their bodhisattva potential is unleashed. So you'd have to look at that I'm at both the level of individual karma and bodhisattva action and then being part of the life, life of a Buddha, I would say. I don't know if that's helpful yeah, for your question. I, think, I mean, because I think through what it boils down to is that um, if you are aware of that, that you can be skillful, that you can make choices um, about um, how you yeah. And, or and how you see the lines and, and right. how you see distinctions um, and or not distinctions, that, that it does give you more options for... Right. Right. I think you're putting your finger actually on a really interesting kind of paradox, right? Because it's true that it, this is a way of opening up the possibilities of, of the implications of any action. So it expands the range of action and the meaning of action, of any given action. But it does so, you know, the, the claim here is that's not done by sort of um, separating out our agency as yeah. sort of the, the engine of in control of making decisions and choices, right? But by a kind of almost the opposite move that opens those up. Yeah. Yeah, in other words, you don't have a narrow view of conscious purpose anymore. Yes. Or a narrow view of, of agent and and. The thing that's acting and the thing that's acted on. That's right. That's right. We could talk. We this talking about Buddhist ethics. You have to. I think we'd have to talk more also about just the conception of bodhisattvahood in particular. Because there's a lot sort of to unpack there. Yeah. I would give the last question to Juan Pablo. Yes, uh, we're running over time. Maybe, and we have service. And maybe one more. I see Juan has his hand up. Yeah, one problem. Okay, thank you. Um, something I, I was thinking, maybe delusion then is related to exclusion. So this is the first question. So suffering and delusion is related in Tiantai to exclusion or to the exclusion on perspectives. Yes. And uh, maybe uh, we can say or we could say that uh, the practice is to include the most we can different perspectives. That's one question. And the other question is if you have any suggestion to any book of introduction to Tiantai. That's two questions. Uh, well, the first question, um, yeah, I think that's a very big part of it. The inclusion <coughs> of as many alternate perspectives as possible, right? Absolutely. I would just add... Um, just like I we were just saying about, you know, you can view samsara or nirvana um, <coughs> to, uh, 
two sort of refinements on that would be, well, it's one thing to just see that there are these other views, right? That's very important. Right? And even to imagine them, I do think that's what that exercise is doing, right? Think about the demons in hell. Think about the gods. Think about these. Think about this is what their life is like. And this is their view on everything else, including you, right? But the next thing is <clears throat> there isn't any separation between uh, the perspective on things and the things. They're built in, you could say, right? So because of this fundamental emptiness slash ambiguity, it's not that there's first a thing and then there's these different views on that self-same thing. To be a thing, Dogen, by the way, has a great thing on this in the, uh, uh, what is it, the Mountains and Rivers Sutra piece, right? When he's talking about, you know, you're looking at water, right? Uh, uh, um, isn't that one right? Yeah, mountains and Rivers, right? Uh, you're looking at water, this uh, hungry ghost sees it as uh, you know, pus or something, and uh, helping sees it as fire. <coughs> is it that there is, so you're, you're engaging all those different views, but then he asks, is, is there just like a fire which is none of the above, right, which is just sort of beyond all those views? No, it is all those views and the thing, and, and that means also all those views entail each other. So it's not just separate, you know, the, the, the danger is to sort of just look at views as if they're things. Here's one view, here's another view, we're just going to plop them down in this sort of neutral space. No. And so they actually kind of, you know, intersubsume in this way. And even the object is part of that, right? So I, so that's one thing I'd recommend you read the Mountains and Rivers Sutra in Dogen for this. I think it's a great one. Um, if you want to read on Tentai, I don't know, uh, original source material, there's a very long translation of the text I was just talking about, Mohadragwan. Uh, I, you can read, I, I've tried to write sort of intro stuff on Tentai, uh, I have a book called Emptiness and Omnipresence, maybe, is one, and the, there's a Stanford Encyclopedia Philosophy article, from me, which might help, I don't know, uh, I don't know, Tegan, maybe you have some other intro ideas? You're, you're muted. Now, now you're unmuted. Don't unmute, please. <laughs> it's gone. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I just wanted to ask, well, I think you said it, but you recommend one, one of your books on Chantai. <clears throat> I think I'm told that the that one... Emptiness and omnipresence is is sort of the most accessible. So if, I, I I can't vouch for that, but that's what I've been told. So thank you all. Thank you, Brooke.